The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents The Skilled Technical Workforce The role HBCUs have in crafting America's STEM workforce A professional development seminar Featuring Vice President for Research and Graduate Programs for the University of the District of Columbia Victor McCrary Founder and Managing Partner for Ujima Developers, LLC Leon Caldwell an Aviation Maintenance Program Director for the University of the District of Columbia Community College, William Russo. The National Academies of Sciences has estimated that by 2022, there will be a shortfall of skilled technical workers, defined as those workers who are post-high school in professions that require STEM-capable skills, but do not require a four-year degree. In addition, the National Academies last year produced a report on minority-serving institutions, noting that over half are community colleges. With this changing landscape of multiple career paths for students and the changing needs of industry, where do HBCUs, MSIs, play a role in their communities in this newly disruptive employment environment? Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents the skilled technical workforce, the role HBCUs have in crafting America's STEM workforce. Featuring Victor McCrary, Leon Caldwell, and William Russo. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, let's do that again. Good afternoon, everybody. Okay, good, good. Uh, my name is Victor McCrary, and I will be your moderator today. This is a session seminar on the skilled technical workforce uh, and the role for HBCUs and other institutions and yourself. Um, we have two guests today that will be part of our panel. Uh, two of our panelists uh, had to run into some weather problems here getting here, but we're so glad that they're here and I'll introduce them in a few minutes. Um, but before we start and talk about some of the questions and what we have for the panel, um, wanted to give you a briefing on this whole issue of the skilled technical workforce. I'm so glad that you're here. And what does that all mean for us? Um, I'm also beside uh, the vice president for research at the University of District of Columbia. I'm also a member of the National Science Board. And about two years ago, we were very, very much concerned about some of the issues in terms of our research facilities, but also in the case of national security, that there were some talents that were really needed. So while we had folks from PhD all the way down to the bachelors who were working on some of the science and technology we had, we were very, very concerned as, but where are the people who have these STEM skills to maintain these facilities? Or for example, if you go to Newport News, it's the largest naval shipyard in the world. We heard from folks there working on the Virginia-class submarines. We, don't, we can't find enough electricians. We can't find enough welders. And what you're hearing in the panel today is we're not talking about your mom or your dad's electrician from 20 years ago. We're talking about people who have to know how to code. They have to know how to do circuit diagrams. For example, in the automotive industry, uh, you don't just need mechanics. You need elect uh, electromechanics because cars are electromechanical systems. And so what we're hearing from the industry, what we're hearing from government, particularly the defense sector, is where are these people? And in fact, there was a report that I'll talk about that just came out that said by 2022, 
we're going to have a shortage of 4 million people. But they don't require a bachelor's degree, and there's a lot of opportunity. So we started to look at this. And as you can see here, what we're really also concerned about is the long-term health and competitiveness of the United States. This past month, the National Science Board put out a report called Indicators 2020. We put it, it comes out every two years. It talks about the health, both globally and nationally, in terms of science and technology. What we found out in this report was very, very disturbing, that we are losing our lead, okay? We still lead in R&D, but we're rapidly gaining by, by global competitors, particularly in this case, China. And that we needed to grow our domestic STEM workforce, particularly this section of the workforce, the skilled technical workforce. So in that, we said, how do we find out a little bit more about what's going on? We met with a large number of stakeholders from senior members of the Department of Labor, the Department of Education, the American School Counselor Association. We went to a couple of sites. So we went to Detroit, to the auto manufacturers. We went to Louisiana, to the oil and gas industry. We went to South Carolina, where the aerospace manufacturing, and talked to a large number of stakeholders, from high school students, college students, industry CEOs, government officials. What is the concern about the workforce? Well, let's take a look at it. First of all, the salaries in the skilled technical workforce are not that bad compared to those who are non-STEM. So for example, if you can go out and with eight years, you can get a master's electrician's job and Mr. Uh, um, Brown, who could not make here at the last minute, um, would tell you, you could make $100,000. Um, actually, that's quite better than eight years' time for folks. Sometimes, for some folks who get a bachelor's degree. And by the way, you have no debt. So these workers, as you can see, a lot of them are in the construction and gas industry, particularly a lot of healthcare. So for example, how many people have had an MRI or some sort of digital? Most of those are done by technicians who have only a two-year degree. They're very smart, they do the interpretation, they get the MD to sign off on it. There's a shortage of those people in those professions. And then also, if you look at the skilled technical workforce by race and ethnicity, pretty much mirrors the US population. Now, in terms of by gender, there still needs to be more women in these fields. But when we talked out to a lot of students, a lot, particularly a lot of women said, I didn't know you can make a good salary and get in the middle class getting in a technical occupation. And so this just shows the timeline of visits we made. We went from everywhere, like I said, to places across the country. We went to the White House. We had sessions here in Washington to talk about this issue. And then talked about the fact that there's going to have to be some changes in how we look at this workforce to make sure that we can meet the demand for our country in order to stay competitive. The reason I say that is there's a lot of systematic obstacles. So for example, if you go to any of the high schools here right now, most of the high schools get their funding from the state boards of education. The funding is allocated based on college-bound students. But did you know that community college is not considered college by the, by the current formula? So that discriminates against two-year institutions. 
Mostly, did you also know high school counselors, particularly seniors, that the ratio, even in the most affluent schools, is about 400 to one, 400 students for one counselor. And that's the counselor not only for to tell you, hey, look, should I go to college? Should I pursue this track? Should I go into military? Should I start my own business? But this is the same counselor for the students who come in the morning and say, I didn't have breakfast because we didn't have food or there's some domestic violence that's going on in my house. So we also have a problem on that end. Also, we have a problem with stigma. So we asked the High School Counselor Association, do they bring people in like the, from the military or people, say, from the Electrical Workers Union? And they said, look, Dr. McCrary, I live in Fairfax County. It's a very affluent county. This is in Virginia for those who may be from out of town. They said, if I brought somebody in and tried to convince these young women and young men and talk to them about being an electrician, I'd be run out of town. Because the narrative is everybody should go to college and everybody should get a degree. Of course, what the American High School Counselor Association did tell us is nationwide, third, uh, first year students that go to college, 30% drop out. So can you imagine if somebody had sat down and said, hey, look, you know, here are all these other occupations you might have an affinity for, and you're going to hear some about some today from our panelists, that we could really fill this workforce and reduce college debt. So this is talking about how do we develop it, you know, and first of all is, you know, stop pitting two-year schools against four-year schools. We need to get more data. I mean, right now, a lot of students and counselors do not have access to say, if you were to become a welder, or if you were to get into the gas and oil industry, or even if you were to get a bachelor's degree, what is it that you have to do? What kind of certifications do you have to have? And what kind of salary can you expect? I mean, wouldn't that be helpful for some of you? I know it would have been helpful for me when I got out of high school in terms of choosing the right career. And so a lot of these things are still missing. And that's why we had a couple of recommendations, the National Science Board. By the way, the National Science Board, of which I'm a member, oversees the National Science Foundation. We're appointed by the president. And we help put the roadmap together and the vision for research for the United States. One of the recommendations we had is we got to change the message. Um, you know, they used to, when I came up, called it vocational education. But for some reason, that got a bad stigma because it was always thought that people went in VOTEC were people who couldn't go to college, which is far from the truth, which is why they call it career technical education or CTE. But still there is that stigma. I mean, think of some of you all who may be parents or are parents. If your daughter or son came up and said, you know, I want to be an electrician. Ask yourself, look in the mirror, how would you feel about that? You know, or they said, I wanted to go be a welder, even though welders start out at about $85,000 a year. All right. The next thing is we need to focus on the data. I uh, talked a little bit about that. We don't have enough data to inform students. We don't have enough data to inform vets who get out of the military, uh, what kind of courses you should take and where would that lead in terms of salary. We don't have enough data on expectations. I mean, I have a PhD. I still have to stay on top of my field. It may not be chemistry, it may be other things in terms of management. But you know what? We don't really have clear paths to talk about lifelong learning. And this is just to talk about it in terms of associate degrees awarded and how much money people are making. Um, as you can see, these are just 
AA degrees. Um, computer sciences, that number is even, that's just an average, right? Today we have somebody here from Amazon who's attending the conference. They said, you know, Dr. McCrary, if they have enough certifications, we don't even care if they have a two-year degree, they can start at $110,000 a year, okay? And in fact, it's the IT area that's distorting these curves because all of us kind of grew up that said, you know, if you and I both got out of high school and you didn't go to college and I did, that over time, the salaries would diverge for life. We're now seeing that divergence become less and less, particularly in a lot of the IT industry. The National um, Security Agency, 40% of their workforce does not have a college degree, but these are some of the best hackers on the planet. And they had to modify their, their um, hiring procedures, which goes talk about federal investments and changes in procedures, other recommendations. When we went to a lot of places, particularly in Louisiana, we had some CEOs there who were saying, look, as long as this person has got the talent, I'm willing to hire. We had a student said, well, you know, I did apply for your company and they did hire me, but then they called me the next day and rescinded the offer because I didn't have a degree because HR had some outdated thing that said you had to have a college degree, even though this person had the demonstrated skills. And I looked at the CEO and I said, when did HR make a business decision for any sort of company? And so it's some of these things, both in government, because NSA had to get a waiver, and in industry, we've got to get past this thing that in certain jobs, degree requirements are artificial impediments that are keeping us from doing the business that we have to do as a country. And then the other thing is build partnerships, two-year colleges, four-year colleges, working with the unions, working with, for example, uh, some of the businesses in the community to say, and working with school systems, that this workforce is out there and capable. And so I had to go brief the White House on this. There have been some industry days. We've talked to the Society for American Military Engineers. There was a blue collar STEM conference in Maryland. I guess this is all to say that right now there's legislation that's coming out of the White House that's gonna fund large numbers of apprenticeships. Apprenticeship education is now back in. There's gonna be messaging. There was a National Council for the American Worker that was set up last summer by the White House talking about getting folks in these jobs and also kind of doing the messaging, celebrating. There's nothing wrong wearing a hard hat. Um, Mr. Again, Mr. Brown, who could not be here because of a death in the family, would tell you right now, if you're an electrician, you're using thermal imaging equipment to look at panels to see, for example, if breakers are going to fail. And I said, so you're actually doing spectroscopy. He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, that's what I got a PhD in. He says, well, we're not hiring PhDs, okay? <laughs> we want to hire people who just understand it enough and know how to use the equipment. And so today's panelists, two of them who could not be here, unfortunately, uh, Francis Skip Brown, who I can talk to some of the things he would say, who's with Skip's electrical service. He also works for the architect of the Capitol. And he will tell you right now, across the country, there's a shortage of 100,000 electricians. And again, remember, this is not your image of the electrician from yesteryear who you saw put in someone's attic pulling Romex or BX cable. This person has to know how to code. So you've seen some of these security systems, some of them are wireless, you know, like the ring systems. 
And of course, he says he gets a lot of business because Ring tells people you can do it yourself, but as soon as a person puts it up there and it can't work, uh, they have to call the electrician. But that person has to know how to code. They have to know how to do circuit design. We have Leon Caldwell, who's the founding and manager partner of Ujima Development, LLC, and he's going to tell you a little bit about what he's doing in this sector. Uh, we have William Russo, who's the director of aviation maintenance program at the University of District of Columbia. And I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder, but let me tell you what he does. So UDC has a hangar at National Airport, and they teach aviation maintenance. And they can, he can take any young woman or young man out of here, particularly out of high school, who doesn't know the difference between a regular head screwdriver and a Phillips head screwdriver, okay? And within two years, they can get a certificate, FAA certificate, and they can walk across a one way to Southwest and start at $70,000 a year. All right. Now, one thing I want to emphasize is it's about career management. Now, imagine that person after three or four years and Southwest looks at them and says, Bill, you're doing a damn good job. Um, I want you to go back and get your bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering. And Bill says, yeah, but guess what? Southwest pays for it. All right. So Bill doesn't have any debt. And then after a couple years, you know, Bill may get a call from Latanza and says, hey, you're really good at that. We want to put you in the front office. Uh, we'll send you back for a couple of courses or maybe a degree in program uh, project management, you know, or cost estimation. I don't want you underneath the aircraft anymore. Take, you know, get off, you know, get the grease off your face and hands. I need you up here. Because you want that person who has firsthand knowledge. Eventually, over time, you want them to help you run your business. And guess what? Guess who pays for that? Lufthansa, not Bill. And so if you think about it, uh, in comparison to, say, maybe the German system people have known where people start out of high school, either you go apprentice track or you go college and you stay there for the rest of your life. What's so nice about America is we have all these on and off ramps. You could start out doing technical work, okay, and then you can move on. I mean, when I had to go through college, I had to do piping. I had to do plumbing and electrical stuff, and it helped me go on. I'll leave one final thing, and now I'll turn it over to our panelists. Let me tell you why else we're, we're very concerned about this. We're very concerned about the innovation quotient of the United States because everything is created twice. You think of this bottle in your mind and then you go out and bang metal and you make it. But if everything is now computer simulation, well, who does the real making? Which is why you see these maker shops show up in the universities. In fact, Many of the deans of engineering I've talked about in the four-year schools have said, you know, our, our, our students are much smarter than when you and I came along. And I said, they are. But they said, you know what? They don't know how to change a tire. You know, they don't know how to sweat a pipe. They don't know the difference between single phase and three phase. And these are electrical engineers. And so, or they know how to use a bandsaw. So if you look at these maker shops, I said, wait a minute. When I came up, that was called shop, okay? Um, but when you do that, you have an idea and you start doing something with your hands. Even if your goal is to get a degree or not, it builds confidence and you're also creative. You know, I can't tell you how many times iterations of go-karts I had to make by stealing shopping carts and taking the wheels off growing up in DC. But it's very important because we're, we're, we're losing those talents. So you've heard enough of me because this is your workshop, but what I'd like to do is to have these next two speakers and Mr. Caldwell, 
Uh, would you like to give your remarks? Sure, sure. So this is really helpful. I'm glad you ended in talking about makerspaces because a lot of what uh, I just give a quick overview of kind of who I am and I got to the space uh, and then tell about the projects I'm working on. So I actually, I went to, to Lehigh University, an engineering school. I took one engineering class, um, it was in Fortran, if you remember that, or C++, exactly. Before the, uh, it was before Microsoft's uh, Windows was a big deal and everybody had to learn freshman year. Uh, you know, that was the class, right? Um, I, I quickly got into economics. <laughs> um, so I ended up with a degree in economics, uh, and I'm, I'm giving this because Dr. McCrary's overview actually touches, has touch points of which is relevant to why I'm actually here. Um, after an economics degree, I got a, a master's in school counseling. I was a high school guidance counselor, um, which led me to focus my PhD work. I'm, I, my doctor's in counseling psychology. Um, it led me to focus a lot of my PhD work on career development. Um, so particularly vocational psychology. Uh, I was very focused on that because to me, um, this whole notion of career pipelines was really the gateway to economic mobility for people of color, right? And I understood that very, very clearly. I also understood that there was no career theory that captured the African-American experience in the world of work. So it's really important to notice because most of your theories focus on a couple of assumptions. One, freedom, <laughs> right? Two, uh, access to information. So if you think about all of what this panel is gonna talk about, probably what you're focusing on here, is some of those things that do not, they, like, they bypass uh, people who have been historically disenfranchised in this country. Thus, the gaps you see are not necessarily, you know, they're expected given what we know about the education system and things of that nature. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of pivot to talk a little bit about um, what uh, I've basically designed is called the STEAMY workspace. Um, and I didn't even think about the slides because I gave a, a different presentation of it. Um, so STEAMY is, and this is trademark, so I'm gonna say it publicly so you all can take a look at it at some point. So STEAMY is the STEM, we had the A for arts, and at the end, actually the M is squared because we've uh, wanted to put math and manufacturing in it because um, we're not connecting technology to manufacturing, particularly advanced manufacturing. The I at the end is for innovation, which touches a touch one of yours, and the E is for entrepreneurship. Um, there is a piece where we have to start, for people who have historically not been in these conversations, start to engage them in how to monetize their skills. And what that essentially means is not everyone's going to be working for Boeing or for whomever, but some people are actually are going to be the next business owners or the next creators of, of their own kind of movements. Um, and when we put all this together, what was really clear for me was that um, uh, as many discussions I've kind of been a part of in you know, some of the uh, academic walls, is it's clear that while these are big amorphous theories and nice words and people are trying, the entry points to which we engage people are all off, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think we have, you know, I've gone to a gazillion conferences over the years, um, given workshops and all this. At the end of the day, what really matters is how we actually, at what, 
how we actually intervene and where we actually intervene. Um, and what I noticed in a lot of the workforce development, and I'm, this is not knocking workforce development, um, but the typical definition of workforce development is really how to train people to use a broom differently, right? <laughs> it has not been about how to prepare people for the next century workforce or with next century skills. And I'm not even saying 21st century, I'm thinking next century, because we always should be kind of ahead, right? So um, in about 2015, I did a, a little career pivot, left uh, academia as a tenured professor and got into philanthropy, um, worked for the Annie Casey Foundation uh, and um, the, the Bruce Foundation, and then got really frustrated at the incremental nature of uh, change. And more importantly, um, really clear about how uh, change was not happening at the rate because of who actually was receiving the funding. And this is where, to me, um, these kind of conversations are extremely important. Uh, and I say extremely important because, you know, I'm assuming that many of you in this room are access points, right? Um, and those access points uh, oftentimes are um, become so narrow, right? You think about your own career progression or trajectory or journey, right? It was like that one thing that got you to where you are. And we all had that discussion of that one conversation, that one person, right? Um, and I think there's, there's something um, problematic. Uh, it was a, a career theorist called uh, John Crumboldt. And Crumboldt had a theory of happenstance for careers, right? And one of the things that are interesting about this theory of happenstance is that if you just happen to be in the right spot at the right time, then, you know, you just leave a lot, a lot up to chance. Now, some people say that that's probably true, right? But it's still something that your preparation, right, your openness, your temperament, all those other things lead to, if that happenstance happens, you being prepared to take advantage of it. So I, um, I got a little frustrated. I would say I'm motivated by pet peeves often. Um, and one of my pet peeves was the conversation around this, and you started off with this, this, this thing of we can't find anybody, right? That is code word, right? It's code word if we're not actually looking for you, right? Um, and I think the, uh, one of the things that we are clear about in this space, uh, when I did this uh, kind of pivot to real estate development, actually I do uh, holistic equitable development now, is one thing that I really wanted to make sure that neighborhoods had, um, the ones that I'm developing in Philly and in Baltimore, was to make sure that they had access to economic mobility strategies. Now, what that looks like is a program or two, but we're not talking about programs, I'm talking about this part of the infrastructure of a neighborhood, um, which led me to this um, project I'm working on now called the Steamy Workspace. The Steamy Workspace is essentially a makerspace, right? Because um, I have this, you know, I'm a tinkerer and probably had I, uh, taking um, you know, a couple more math classes, I probably would have done something different, but I'm good where I am now. Um, and what I've noticed is that in these makerspaces when I would go, there was a couple of real clear things. And I always describe makerspaces initially as places where um, white boys could go tinker and not blow up their grandparents' garage, right? It was real gendered. It was real, uh, uh, it was pretty much monolithic when you go in. You see a scattering of other people. But man, when you actually start playing around and look at the tools and, you know, the CNC routers and the 3D printers and, you know, if you're like the exposure to some of this stuff, right? And I'm, I'm getting all excited about it, right? And I go back and ask some of my friends who are very similar to me, similarly positioned, you guys ever seen a makerspace before? And they were like, what are you talking about? Nobody knew what this was. 
And then I go back to the neighborhood. I'm from West Philly. I go back to my neighborhood and I'd ask some of my cousins, you know, y'all ever hear of a makerspace? Y'all know what this is? And nobody, nobody ever knew what I was talking about. And I'm seeing that this makerspace, this, this thing, this place, right, is actually an on-ramp to technology careers. It is an on-ramp to these jobs for the future. It's an on-ramp to economic mobility. But none of us knew about it. So here you have this asset, which in many cities are, as you know, as Dr. McCray mentioned, are at universities, which have their own kind of barriers and loadings, right? Or they're at whether it's four-year, two-year colleges that get taxed to education. Um, for some, if you've been pushed out of school from K through 11 or 12th grade, going to community college or any other college is not really, it just, you got PTSD symptoms, right? Of actually going on to uh, uh, any uh, educational institution. That doesn't mean that you said you're not any smarter or don't have the capacity. It just means you haven't had an experience in education settings that don't make that something that makes you feel good about yourself, right? Um, so I thought about it. I was like, well, if I'm looking at this as an on-ramp and I'm, I see access here, I see opportunity for people to not only learn to create and tinker and use your hands and as entry-level skills to, you know, uh, one of my friends, uh, Carla Trotman, they run Electrosoft, um, which is an electronics firm. Uh, and, it, and I go up to her place outside of Philly, and I'm watching them put motherboards together, right? And it's soldering. It's a safe job, right? It's warm, right? It's not outside. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that people can do if you knew what an electronics bench was, right? But if you can't see it, you can't be it. And in many cases, what I notice is that the, the location of these makerspaces, their entry points, right? were not places where this talent was, right? And the problem with that is that this is what allows people to say, we can't find anybody, which is code word for what? We ain't looking for you. So the point is, how do you make this, how do you democratize access to these on-ramps? How do you put it in a community that in many cases, some of these are transitioning, some of them aren't, Right, um, but we're looking to actually, I bought a uh, 12,000 square foot warehouse near the Philadelphia Zoo. It's been vacant for 15 years. Um, we're sourcing capital together now to convert this, which is like in the hood, to convert this, this building into a 17,000 square foot makerspace. We're gonna pop up the roof and do some classroom stuff and things of that nature, right? But more importantly than the building is the location. The location is in neighborhood. So now I can walk, I can take public transportation. I can just get off the 15 trolley, walk a half block and I'm right there, right? I can take the 40 bus, which goes right past Penn and Drexel and come right to this space where I now can get skilled up in an environment that does not expect me to look anything different than I am. So that imposter syndrome, right, is mitigated. I think part of what the, um, you know, it, it, even in your introductory comments, right, is part of what I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can demonstrate, you know, as one as a, a, a real estate developer, is that in order to, you know, address this issue of not only income inequality, displacement through gentrification, things of that nature, is we have to be more strategic about what assets and opportunities are in place, right? And so if workforce development is going to be serious about um, income mobility or income inequality or mitigating it, it has to be towards jobs that are going to be pointed towards the future. There's a bunch of studies out that talk about the, the role of automation is going to have in the black community, right, with 
career is going. I mean, we see this, I always use the example of my little grocery store down the street. At one point, there was, you know, at least six or seven of my teenage neighbor's kids down at the Weiss Market, right? Now there's only like four, but there's like 10 more self-service kiosks to go out. Those jobs are gone for those teenagers, right? So what else are they gonna do? And I think about these other um, points of reference where we know that some of the careers that we're preparing young people for today, and I'm not just talking about young people, by the way, because this steamy workspaces can upskill people as well. So Chris uh, Jones, who's in the, the Naval Welding Institute, he's one of the tenants of the steamy uh, um, makerspace. So they have a whole system of basically teaching folks who are at welding experience about how to go to the next level of welding in a SCIF and some of the other, I don't want to talk out of term with all my military stuff, but um, have the opportunity to actually not only get upskilled into a higher paying job, but serve as a beacon for young, young people in the neighborhood to even know what this is. Like how many of you have been in positions or seen uh, these careers or even like you didn't even know these things exist? Right? And you didn't know these exist because they were not accessible to you in any way. So the whole point of the Steamy Workspace and some of the, you know, the work that we're doing um, to do uh, three things. The first is pre-apprenticeship. So I talk about cultivating talent. This is a very important piece to this because if you've had people who have been uh, two generations of either underemployed and unemployed, to expect them to show up without these essential navigation skills, the people used to call them soft skills. I think that's actually the wrong way of phrasing them. Um, we talk about these essential navigation skills that will allow someone or teach one. I mean, this, and I don't say this in a pejorative way. That's something you do have to learn, right? Um, to how to show up and present and do things that, uh, one, make the, the culture and climate of any workplace more feasible. So that's a, that's a really important thing to, to consider. Two is in the, um, uh, the upskilling, right? People have to see a talent that they have or a skill or interest and how do they have a, a, something that is transferable, right? Um, because you can say, oh, I'm just stuck doing this one thing, you know, this is the only thing I can do. And you don't, you have to kind of coach them to knowing that things are actually transferable. And the third thing we're really interested in is essentially monetizing skills, right? Um, we have this plan where uh, because the Philadelphia Zoo is like literally right behind our building, um, we have a, a agreement with the zoo that if, and I told the, one of the state senators this, we, we're going we're gonna to create 20 new, new businesses, small businesses in this neighborhood, in this block. And he was like, what are you talking about? Well, it's easy, right? If I get five kids over here who can make something with a 3D printer, teach them how to do an LLC, create an entity, they then take that trinket or whatever it is, they go right behind and they sell it at the zoo kiosk where millions of people come every year in the nation's first zoo. They now have a, uh, they see making becoming my money. Think about what that does to somebody to produce in your own neighborhood, to like create something with your own hand using technology, like things you didn't even know exist. When I say 3D printer, you know, somebody wants to go get the little VR thing on. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Like it's a, it's a whole different technology, right? You're listening to the skilled technical workforce, the role HBCUs have in crafting America's STEM workforce, a professional development seminar featuring Victor McCrary, Leon Caldwell, and William Russo. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, 
the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So I think there's, um, you know, and I hope to have a, you know, more of a conversation and listen and learn uh, about this because the the one piece that I would um, would would like to put out there for those who are in some of the power positions, um, and I mean influence positions, actually, I guess we all have power and influence, but the there is a particular bias in who gets trained and what they get trained in. And I've had this debate with one of my good friends who's actually schooled me up a lot of this, uh, Kamal Bob, who I think now is at Google doing some interesting stuff, um, you know, about this whole notion that everybody is coding, right? Like coding is a basic skill, but there's so much more you can do. But we're not teaching kids in the city like the next thing with coding, right? And one of my really good friends, Juan Gilbert, it, you know, he's a kind of preeminent computer scientist guy. He always talks about it's not so much the coding, but what you can do with it. And we're not teaching in some of these programs, after school, others, that this is actually a social justice conversation. Uh, and I'm saying this in the, in the context of um, we know that if we do not do all these things that could broaden the field, expand the bench, whatever you want to call it, like the national security of our country is at stake. And when you say it that way, regardless of party affiliation, all this stuff, it looks a lot different than saying we're not just giving poor black kids an experience or poor brown kids an experience, right? And I think that's the, I like to raise the conversation to that level because then, you're, then, you, then we can have a different set of opportunities and not just for those, the youth who are, or young people or whomever, the opportunity youth as they call them, or even those getting upskilled, is not so much uh, what they're getting skilled in, it's actually how and who does it. Because without that kind of talent cultivation mentality, mm -hmm. that, that we're still going to have people, and when I taught in Ghana, we would call them educated unemployables, right? Mm -hmm. They may be skilled up, but you can't place them. Um, so there's another piece of this conversation that, you know, I hope we have um, because it's, it's relevant to this, this work. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. Next, uh, and I'll bring your presentation up, we're going to have Bill Russo. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the program because he's actually kind of doing what, uh, what you said, Leon, uh, is doing something in, in D.C. As you know, D.C. is a tale of two cities. Um, you have of the eight wards, six wards where the average salary is something on the order of 130000 average. Ward seven or eight, the average salary is about $40,000 income. So why don't you go ahead and start. I'll bring your thing up and you tell about what you're doing in D.C. Uh, so uh, I go by Bill, uh, Bill Russo. I'm the Aviation Program Director at the University of the District of Columbia Community College. And as Dr. McCrary uh, mentioned, we have a hangar uh, at, right, at Reagan National Airport, which is uh, amazing uh, that we have that facility. Um, I'm the Program Director, but I'm also a full-time faculty member. I teach full-time. And uh, outside of UDC, I sit on the Board of Directors of a national organization called the Aviation Technician Education Council. It's a national uh, organization to represent aviation maintenance schools. Um, there's a really cool. big shortage uh, currently in aviation maintenance uh, in general. But of particular interest to our program uh, is the fact 
uh, that minorities are, um, it's, it's beyond underrepresented. I'll, I'll show you some numbers here in a second. I don't remember if I put them all on the slide. I don't wanna, I don't like to put a lot of details on slides. Um, but our program is, is, is well established. It's been in place since 1978. Um, and they call us the biggest secret in the city or hidden gem, that sort of thing. Um, I regularly run into uh, colleagues within the university that say, gee, we have an aviation program. Yes, we do, and you need to tell everybody about it because uh, to follow on with, with some of the theme of your conversation, accessibility is the, is the key. Um, we can put students on, uh, or, or um, uh, our, our potential students, on a pathway that they never dreamed was possible. Um, and so we have um, a couple uh, career paths that our students could follow. We have a, um, a certificate program. If you want to work on airplanes, you can't just work on airplanes like you can with cars. You need a certificate from the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, there are only a couple ways to get that certificate, and one of those ways is to attend a school like ours. Uh, they're typically two-year programs, four academic semesters. Um, because we're academically accredited uh, as part of UDC, we're also able to offer an associate's degree program. Um, and uh, we are the only academically accredited program in the region. There are a couple private uh, for-profit schools uh, out there, um, but they're not accredited. So they can't offer academic degrees and their credits aren't transferable to traditional educational institutions. So their students can essentially do nothing but get the certificate. Now that'll get them a job and, and they may have uh, opportunities uh, beyond. Um, but I think the, the most impressive fact is that we're 84% less expensive than those private schools. And so not only are we academically accredited and can offer an academic degree, but 84% less expensive. Many of our students are able uh, to work full time in addition to going to school and pay their way through and leave our program with absolutely no debt whatsoever. And as Dr. McCrary pointed out, walk into a job where their first day on the job, their own personal salary may exceed the salary of the entire household. That's life changing for the whole family. Um, and it's uh, amazing to be a part of that. I, I have to tell you, I get to change lives every at the end of every single semester, um, and it's 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 addictive. I can't get enough of it. Um, our students, uh, we currently have 45 enrolled. It's not enough. Uh, we're, we're we're looking to increase that. Um, when I took over the program four years ago, we only had 11 students, um, and and apparently that was up from previous years. The program was in a in a pretty hard down cycle. Uh, and so the university hired me to reinvigorate and, and turn this program around and, and see what we could do with it. And so we've quadrupled enrollment and, and we're continuing to, to uh, climb. Our biggest uh, uh, demographic is, is from here in the district, which is exactly what we're hoping for. But geographically, we also serve Southern Maryland and Northern Virginia. So about half of our students come from there. Um, but you see 40 male students and, and five female. Uh, we are well above the national average at that. That's 11% of our student, but nationally, 2.3% of certificated aviation maintenance technicians are women, almost none. Um, only about 9% of certificated aviation maintenance technicians are not Caucasian. Uh, that's appalling. Um, now, our program is unique uh, because of where we are located geographically and because we are an HBCU. When I go to national conferences and I meet my colleagues from schools across the country, they ask me, gee, 
do you have any minority students in your program? And I say, yes, I have five white kids and two white instructors. <laughs> that's, that's, and, and that's a product of where we are. Um, but nationally, uh, we're, we're kind of an anomaly in that respect. And so we, uh, as, as a program, have many initiatives in place to try and change that. Um, we, don't, we don't really have to do anything to get minorities into our program. That's sort of the, the demographic that comes in our door naturally. But we are working very hard, uh, particularly to increase uh, our population of, of women in the program. Um, our, our, our program is a, a member of two national organizations, Women in Aviation International and the Association for Women in Aviation Maintenance. And we work with these national organizations to help spread the word that our program uh, is very supportive uh, and, and safe for women to come into, and that women can come into it. We work with DC public schools to spread awareness. Uh, so many people don't even know what, that we're there, uh, but we bring in groups of high school kids. Um, never, uh, most people have never heard of aviation maintenance, and that's, that's kind of one of our, our biggest problems. Uh, how many of you have actually met an aircraft mechanic before? Uh, good, that's, that's a lot. Usually I might see one or two hands. Uh, because if you fly, certainly you'll meet a ticket agent when you check in with your bags, um, you know, and, and, and get on the airplane. You'll meet the flight attendant. You'll wave at the pilot in the cockpit. You look out the windows and you see people pumping fuel and, and slinging bags around. If everything goes to script, you will never see an aircraft mechanic because they've already prepared the aircraft for flight. The pilots are going to operate the aircraft safely. And when it returns and you get off of it, that's when maintenance takes the airplane. And so in daily life, Aviation maintenance technicians are people that the general public don't really interact with much and, and might not even be aware uh, of at all. Uh, and so when I bring in uh, groups of, of high school kids to look at our program, they come in knowing nothing about it and they leave thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I could, I, I could possibly do that. They especially like visiting us because when they go on field trips to the airport, uh, they have a whole day of don't touch anything, right? You go up in the, in the control, they take them all the way up in the control tower and they've got to sit with their back on the wall and, and look and not touch anything and don't talk too loudly because it might pick you up on the microphone. Um, they go down to the fire department and everybody line along on this wall and, and, and we'll let you sit in the driver's seat of the fire truck, but you can't touch a hose or and definitely can't touch the ax or, or the fire suit. Um, they'll take them down to American Airlines hangar and line them up on the wall. And you know, these are airplanes and we work on them. That's what we do here. Then they come to my hangar and I say, hey, jump inside, right? Don't, don't try and take a so give me your phone, I'll take a picture, you can pretend you're the pilot. Uh, I set up our, our equipment, our training equipment. I let them retract landing gear, extend and retract landing gear, move thrust reversers and uh, spin propellers and get really hands-on uh, to, to, um, to get them excited about it. It works, works very well. Um, we are on a mission at the University of the District of Columbia to innovate. Uh, and to teach in new ways and especially levering, leveraging technology. Uh, I love to show off this picture right here. This is, this is my mission control here. Um, this is our virtual maintenance trainer. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very expensive machine. Uh, but what we have is a commercial airliner, fully functional in the virtual world. 
Uh, there are two screens there on the left is the, is the cockpit, on the right is the airplane. I can move around that airplane in, in 3D space, and I can go anywhere in that airplane. We can go in the cockpit, we can go in the cabin, we can go in the wheel wells, we can go in the avionics and equipment compartments in the, in, in the bottom, we can go in the tail of the airplane. Anywhere a maintenance te technician would need to go in order to perform maintenance, we can go in the virtual world. And here's the, the important thing, it's fully functional. Uh, this was developed by L3 Harris um, at, at very high cost, um, but it's used to train pilots primarily. Uh, this is only the second of its kind in the entire country installed in a school. Um, so I, I had the, the privilege of growing up uh, middle class and I had a lot of educational opportunity uh, that I squandered and did not take advantage of. And I learned a lot of things the hard way. Um, but eventually, when I did go back to school, I was fortunate enough to go to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which is, uh, has the reputation of being one of the best aviation schools in the country. You can go there, and it'll cost you tens of thousands of dollars per semester. They don't have this kind of technology there. Um, what we were able to do with this is to teach aviation maintenance in a way that's directly relevant to uh, the on-the-job skills that our students will need from day one on the job. And most schools aren't doing that. And you think, well, what are they doing in those schools? Well, they teach them how to use their hands and how to remove and replace parts, but they don't have access to a commercial airliner, so they can't teach them how to integrate and work with the uh, hundreds of computers that live underneath of the skin of the airplane and control things like that glass cockpit. Uh, there. Uh, and so in days past, uh, aviation maintenance programs used to recruit heavily from automotive uh, departments and, and people that had automotive background and play with cars and motorcycles. Nowadays, many of my students have never held a, a tool in their hand until they walk into our program. And we have to have a conversation with them, like this is a screwdriver, right? But not just any screwdriver. This is, it's got a flat blade on it. We call that a common screwdriver. This also is a screwdriver, but it has a cross tip. We call that a Phillips screwdriver, and they come in different sizes. We have to teach them that. Um, that's ancillary to what the real skills are in a modern aviation maintenance technician. And those are intellectual skills. Those are thought processes. Those are troubleshooting skills. Because anybody can remove and replace a part. It's a credit to the engineers um, that design these aircraft that they are actually very easy to work on. If I know a certain part needs to be changed, it will not be very difficult for me to change that part. Engineers make it easy because time is money. And if the airplane is parked while I'm changing a part, the airline's losing money. So the quicker I can change it, the faster it gets in the air. The hands-on portion is easy now. The hard part is sitting in that pilot seat, interacting with the computers on the aircraft and, and troubleshooting that problem, that discrepancy, so I know which part to place, replace. And our students are able to do that. We have student stations where they have this in front of them, and they sit side by side as a team, and one student interacts with the aircraft, and the other student interacts with the actual maintenance manuals. We have real maintenance manuals from Southwest Airlines, Iceland Air, and a couple other companies. They're using the actual manuals that uh, technicians working in the industry right now are using, and they do that in our school setting, and, and um, we're able to, to give them education far beyond what other schools are able to do at a cost far below what anybody would actually believe. Uh, how much do you think it, it would cost to get through our entire two-year program? Just anyone want to throw out a, a ballpark guess? 24. 24 what? 24 <laughs> 
Try $8,000. Our competitors in Northern Virginia are $50,000. $8,000 for a district resident. It's a little higher if you live in Virginia or Maryland. Um, but you want to talk about accessibility, that's affordable. It's affordable, and, and again, we're academically accredited, and so we can put them on a path if they choose later in their career to follow on with further education. But this will get them in the, the, in the job that'll put them squarely in the middle of class, in the middle class immediately. Um, one last thing I wanted to touch on, um, I mentioned I'm on the Aviation Technician Education Council Board. One of the things we do is analyze the supply of technicians into the industry. Uh, there are plenty of reports out there, Boeing and, and, uh, and other aerospace manufacturers put out their reports on their projected employment needs. What are their current needs and what are, are their projected uh, future needs? Um, nobody really looks at the supply. So what we do is we poll about 120 schools a year and collect the data from the schools and look at how schools are supplying them. And, and it's um, it's, it, it, we need help, uh, is what it comes down to. Right now, uh, technicians are retiring at a rate of about 5% per year, but they're only being replaced at a rate of about 2% a year through schools. And that's because uh, one in every two seats in aviation maintenance schools are empty. And so we need to get more people into these schools. The average age of an aviation maintenance technician currently today is 57 years of age. That means they're between five and eight years uh, of retirement age. Uh, it takes two years to go through the program, about three years on the job before somebody could be competent and capable and, and, and accept, uh, uh, expected to work on their own without assistance. That means if, we're not, if we don't have students in school right now uh, to get them through the program and in the industry to work side by side with these technicians who are very close to retirement, then when those people retirement, retire and take that collective knowledge with them out the door, the entire industry will suffer as a result. The collective knowledge and skill of the industry will decline. Uh, and so it, it couldn't be more important that right now uh, we get students in these programs and through these programs. Um, some of the biggest obstacles, hiring and maintaining qualified instructors. Um, because there is a shortage in the industry, the airlines, uh, and not just the airlines, uh, but other industries are poaching our, our most qualified technicians. Disney is the biggest employer of aviation maintenance technicians outside of the aviation industry. And that's because uh, if you look at some of these elaborate uh, theme park rides that they have, there's no such thing as a roller coaster school. But if you're looking for a mechanic who's trained in how to deal with complex hydraulic and pneumatic and electrical systems and uh, digital uh, sensing systems and feedback systems and so forth, you'll find that uh, in an aviation maintenance technician. Not just find those skills, but find a person who's been trained to a known certification standard, and that's the key. Um, you can hire an auto mechanic but their, their certification standards are, are kind of all over the place. The ASC standards are, are by and large uh, up to the ASC certifier, um, whereas aviation maintenance standards are, are set uh, by the Federal Aviation Administration. Negative perception, I think you brought that up a little bit, uh, Dr. McCrary. Negative perception and a lack of career awareness. Uh, people don't know we're there or uh, they're afraid of the stigma of entering a two-year program and a two-year trade program uh, at that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, 
it kind of uh, upsets me a little bit because uh, calling it a, a technical or trade program really doesn't do it justice. Um, when I go to STEM conferences, people say, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm in this career field. What, what, how does your career interact with STEM?" And I'm like, "In, in, in every way, there is absolutely no science career that you could, or, or, or uh, uh, subject that you can think of that that aviation doesn't rely on directly." And so um, within ATEC, we believe one of, the, one of the best things that we can do is start a national campaign to spread awareness. And I've got the Choose Aerospace logo up there. Uh, within ATEC, we started a 501c3 um, nonprofit. Choose Aerospace is kind of a working name, but we've got uh, some major airlines and major uh, manufacturers. Boeing's on board, and American Airlines, Delta Airlines is on board. We're all funding this national campaign. We've hired a marketing firm, and they're going and visiting our schools and collecting data uh, from our students. How did you get into aviation? How did you hear about it? Why did you want to come into a program like this? So that we can use that data in order to come up with targeted marketing to try and spread awareness and bring students in, into schools. And so that's kind of thank you, thank you very much, uh, Bill. So we've got just over about 15 minutes left in this session, and I have some questions for the panelists. But you know what? You paid registration fees, okay? And I think you have a lot on your mind about this whole issue of the skilled technical workforce. One more thing, uh, and you can look this up on your phones. If you want to get a copy of the report that came out last September on the skilled technical workforce. I think if you just type skilled technical workforce report, or if you go to the website of the National Science Board, you'll see that report, which is that blue thing I showed you in one slide. Um, and you can download it as a PDF. And very last option, you can come see me, give me your business card and I'll, and I'll send it to you. Before I ask them some questions, I see a lot of people, and I wanna thank you for staying here. Because you're, we have a mic right here. Comments, questions that you have for the panelists here um, about this topic. And please just uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. Hi, I'm Regina Evans. I work for NetApp, which is a multinational data management company um, based out of North, I'm based out of North Carolina. I am working with several volunteers um, I chair the community outreach for our location. And one of the things that we do is we go into um, the elementary schools and expose the kids to STEM opportunities that are available to them, um, whether it be coding you know, or any other type of STEM career. And one of the things that's happened since we started this program maybe three years ago is there is a high demand. And as I listened to uh, Leon Codwell and also with Dr. McCreary, as well as you, um, Bill, we need to reach the kids earlier um, than high school and college. And I'm fortunate that I'm able to see, I've actually worked with high school as well as college in addition to the elementary schools. But one of the things I have right now going on is I have teachers to saying, hey, we want to teach our kids coding or whatever, and we need the training. So my question to you is, in your sphere of influence, what is happening to help get the teachers trained to be able to prepare our kids for these technical jobs? 
that we're talking about today, as well as um, what are you, in your sphere of influence, what are we doing to reach the kids earlier? Leon, you want to tackle that? Yeah, so um, having taught in at least three colleges of education um, in different universities, I can tell you that um, from what I'm seeing that this is not on the radar of uh, teacher preparation and training, which is tragic. Um, what I'm also seeing is that the the career trajectory of someone who can actually even, you know, teach, um, luckily, you know, Bill kind of got bit by, um, is it's going to take industry partnerships to actually invest in that, the relationship between um, a, a science teacher uh, in elementary school and, and, um, and, and to actually bring something to market. Uh, because they're not getting it in higher education, their, their teacher preparation programs um, for science and, and everything else. Which brings me to the bigger issue is, you know, for those of you who are in corporate spaces, um, you have to be a little more strategic about your corporate responsibility role, right? Um, and I'm saying this because uh, some of the efforts are, and I can say this from where I sat in, in philanthropy, some of them are kind of token efforts that are not sustainable. Um, and the reality is that if you were creating an ecosystem or a pipeline, like you just don't have one trickle. It has to actually be something that flows over time. Um, and whether it sits in, you know, your, your CRA, whether it sits in your diversity and inclusion, whether it sits in your, actually it's really good business practice, period, because you're, you know, basically building your, your talent pool. Um, so it can sit in HR to some extent. It has to be something where the, uh, the, the, um, the, end, the partner, the company, right, takes responsibility for that pipeline. Um, so one and done, eh, it's cute. You know, everybody's going to get off work early, if you volunteer time, whatever it may be. Reality is that there's a sustainable effort where you're co-designing what this curriculum looks like over time. And it has to have some out-of-school time as well and parent engagement. Because quiet is kept. Some of these parents could be your talent today, right, instead of you know, we're looking at now. So that, that's what I would kind of offer as a solution. Let me just chime in on that. When we did this study on this report, I told you about the skill technical workforce, we went to Detroit. And so this is, I'm also, beside sometimes being a scientist, I like, I like, I'd like to look at history because sometimes the lessons that we don't learn or the mistakes from them, we repeat again. So we went to Macomb Community College. It's 50,000 students. It's bigger than the University of Maryland. It was built in the 50s by General Motors because General Motors needed those people coming out to have the sophisticated skills. Now, it's not supported by General Motors because General Motors, and this is to your point about industry stepping up, uh, working with the community, they said, look, if we're gonna be providing the jobs, the community needs to work. And since this session is about how can HBCUs, but any of the educational institutions in your community, I think you, they need to have a conversation with first the folks at the HBCU in terms of the, the community development and economic outreach, working with the Chamber of Commerce for your community and saying, look, these jobs are important. Because I can tell you, I was, when I was working at Morgan State a few years ago, the competition everybody heard about, Amazon, you know, uh, H2D, H2Q, where are they gonna put it, right? Um, so we had to write all the stuff up, the proposal and all this other stuff. 
And so my boss at the time, the president of Morgan State, David Wilson, wonderful man, said, Vic, you think we're going to win? He said, it looks good. I said, no, we're not. We're probably not going to win. He says, well, how could you say that? You know, Baltimore's here. You know, there's no big game. The only thing is Under Armour. And I said, the reason they're not going to come here is we have not invested in the talent here in the public schools. They have not invested in safety. The people who work at Amazon do not want to get shot at. I said, but also the bottom line is if you don't have that talent for coding and for what Amazon needs for their AWS services, they're not going to come here. Now, as you see, they ended up in New York, which is still under contention, and Northern Virginia. But they're partnering with the universities. And so I would just say, like the GM thing in Detroit here, is if HBCUs or what other institutions are supposed to be the economic anchors in your community, you have to tell them, look, your role is not just to enroll, it's to serve, okay? And how you can serve is bringing together and facilitating a conversation with the industry, with the local and municipal governments, and to be able to say, we have to make that investment in this talent so that an industry will either stay here or relocate here or expand because we have the kind of talent, whatever the industry is, whether it's an Amazon, um, whether it's a Southwest, you know, whether it is a manufacturing firm, you know, and just to finish, Boeing is in Charleston, okay? They got over $300 million in tax breaks to go there. But what happened was when they went to hire the people, you know, they had people who didn't know how to do fractions, okay? So they, said, so they had to open up a Trident University and do a remedial program there. Now, they sit down, sat down with the city fathers and the city mothers, and they said, look, we're going to expand this plant. But before we do that, because we don't want tax breaks, because we used all our tax breaks up, you have to make the investment in the public education system, because there is no excuse for an 18-year-old wanting to come to work here and don't know the difference that 0.5 is equal one half. Any other questions before I hit the panel with some questions? Oh, 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 good. Come on up, young man. Well, you got to stand in line, too. So <laughs> come on up. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. My name is Dominique Melvin from Northrop Grumman Corporation. Um, oh, right. I, yeah. Um, I have more so a comment than a question um, to Leon and Bill's point as far as accessibility and career awareness. So now as a manager, I have a better understanding of compa ratio. And I feel as though had I known more as an individual contributor, I probably would have been a lot further along, possibly, in salary. Of course, I don't know um, definitively, but I, I think so. And um, I, I just wish that maybe they could have taught that in, in, in college or something, touch on it a little bit um, in, in economic class or, or something. Um, but now as a manager, I make sure that my employees is fully aware of their salary range and where they are in that range. Thank you. If I can, if I can make a Go comment. ahead, please. At, at UDC, we couldn't agree with you uh, more. Uh, and in fact, in our community college, every single student who attends one of our academic degree programs is required to go through our personal finance class and learn how to make a budget 
and, and control their money. And we also teach them how to write a resume, how to interview for jobs, and how to understand what they're worth when they go to interview for a job and, and, and how to negotiate for a salary. So uh, we couldn't agree more. Young man. Uh, I'm Sergeant Beal. Um, my little group of friends here were uh, in the United States Marine Corps. And my question is mainly for Mr. Russo. Uh, when we're about six months from transitioning outside of the Marine Corps, there are different skill bridge opportunities for us to help ease that transition from active duty military into uh, you know, a civilian career. Um, what are the possibilities of creating possibly a four-month course just to introduce um, any, brand or any MOS necessarily into the aviation field? I know we have the aviation branch themselves that could easily transition because I know they are lacking of jobs, mm -hmm. but so that way I can give uh, more opportunities, um, you know, as even just an active duty sergeant in the military um, to my young Marines that could be either staying in the Marine Corps, but more so transitioning and coming up with opportunities um, instead of just thinking they don't know what to do and they uh, just enter civilian world to be able to possibly give them upper opportunities because um, we would be able to afford it with uh, the Montgomery GI Bill and a lot of it, or even the post-9-11 GI Bill. Um, but just six months out from our transition, if we attended even a four-month four course um, on these transitions, that way it can increase the numbers in your students. Um, and also, you know, once we actually transition and we uh, enter the civilian world, continue uh, the rest of the two-year for the program, again, it's the aviation field. And this is not necessarily just for the Marine Corps, but it could be potential for other branches to help ease the transition from active duty to civilian. Yeah, that, that, that's a fantastic idea. You're talking about incorporating into, into the transition assistance program uh, and starting. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we already do work with the with military. Uh, uh, you know, that's how I how I got my mechanic certificate. And I mentioned aviation maintenance schools are, are, are one of the one of the only paths into it. Another path is military training. Um, and. Um, the military aviation technicians, though they're not always qualified based on their military training, they make, there are two actually two certifications, one for the airframe and the other for the engine. They might qualify for one or the other, and so we'll help them get the one they're qualified for, and then we'll enroll them in classes so they can get the other. Um, but we, we hadn't uh, thought about or looked at uh, incorporating uh, our training early uh, in the transition assistance program, and I'll certainly reach out. We've got uh, Andrews, uh, Pax Rivers, not too far either. Uh, plenty of military. Um, we've tried to work with the DC Guard. That's a little more more in DC politics. Uh, is, makes it a little a little challenging, but yeah, that's 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 a fantastic uh, idea. And if you want to if you want to talk about that, so I uh, I'm an Army brat. Don't hold that against me, but uh, um, but I work a lot with NAVC with the Navy. Okay, and uh, my nephew just got out of the Corps, so he was at uh, 29 Palms. And so he's in that transition, and we're working with him to talk about transition. So if you're interested after, I'll give you my card. We can talk about, particularly if you're interested in mechanics programs or other type of transition programs uh, to utilize your skills. Let's sit down and talk. Um, it's 3.40, and they're telling us we have to leave. <laughs> so... Um, I want to say, first of all, would you give a hand to our two panelists here? And because we, there, there are uh, survey forms, because when we do new panels, this is the first time, we'd like you to rate this. I hope you rate it all of five. But also because we got this room for another five or so minutes, our panelists are eager to talk to you so please come and talk to them. 
a lot of information. And one thing I would just say, and this is, 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 is talk to your kids. There are a lot of opportunities in these areas. And like I said, um, my, you know, my son just got out of Coast Guard uh, Academy, okay? He didn't want to go in the military, but he did because he looked at me and said, you know, Dad, my friends went to Maryland, they have a bachelor's degree in art, and they got $150,000 in debt. I'm walking around with no debt, and I got to give them five years of time. And guess what? My CO just told me if I do good in comms, I can go back and get some certifications for that, do another two, three more years. And so there are all these opportunities. And I'm, look, I'm a product of a four-year school. I went on to graduate school. I'm not knocking four-year schools. But I am saying is there are multiple paths, and there's a lot of paths depending on your situation. I don't think anybody in this room has Rockefeller in their last name here. So there are these tons of opportunities. But you do have to go out and get them. As one of the things we said, the information is not readily accessible. So take some time after this. Talk to people. Talk to these folks. These, these, these two people here have extreme amount of knowledge. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Skilled Technical Workforce, the role HBCUs have in crafting America's STEM workforce, a professional development seminar. Featuring Vice President for Research and Graduate Programs for the University of the District of Columbia, Victor McCrary. Founder and Managing Partner for Ujima Developers, LLC, Leon Caldwell. And Aviation Maintenance Program Director for the University of the District of Columbia Community College, William Russo. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.